Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 597 for the 17th of June, 2018. This week, a firmware update is available for most routers designed for home and small office use. Firmware updates are easy to miss, but the current updates are important because they patch a security flaw that could give criminals access to the router and let them see any information sent to or from your network. In short circuits, this week, net neutrality ended. There is still a possible way to reverse the Federal Communications Commission's decision, but it involves voters convincing Congress to act. In other words, don't hold your breath. Adobe has patched another zero-day exploit in Flash. Apple has plans to improve Mac OS security this year. Honda and GM are partnering for battery research and development. And in spare parts only on the website, this month's patches from Microsoft correct 11 critical flaws and another 49 that are rated as important. Acronis plans to establish a technology park, and starting this week, you'll see some changes if you use Office.com or Office 365. So let's start with the bad news. There is no perfect security system. If somebody wants your data badly enough, they'll get it. Not just anybody, of course, but the threat is no longer limited to nation states, government security agencies, and elite criminals. Malware, ransomware, and other exploits are available online for just a few dollars. Hardware and software manufacturers are working as fast as they can to patch vulnerabilities, but not everyone keeps their hardware and software up to date. In fact, I'm my own case in point this week. Until earlier in the week, I had used a Netgear Nighthawk R7000 router, but I wasn't able to update the firmware. Until now, that wasn't a big deal, because the firmware updates just added features I didn't really need and disabled a feature I do need. The router has a USB 3 port that can be used with an external hard disk to create network-attached storage that's available to any computer on the network. Only one version of the firmware works for me, though, at least for the disk drive I have. Every time I've tried to update the firmware, the network-attached storage drive has stopped working and I've had to roll back to the earlier version. That changed abruptly with the advent of malware called VPN Filter. It's designed, apparently, by Russian state intelligence to infect routers, steal information, and then potentially cripple the router. A few weeks ago, half a million routers in more than 50 countries were known to be infected. Since then, that number has increased by 200,000. The malware can set up what's called a man-in-the-middle attack. In this case, the router would intercept communications between you and a service you're connected to. Your bank, for example. Everything would look normal. The malware would intercept your credentials and store them. It would then pass the credentials on to the bank and log you in. 
It could capture all of the information you send to the bank and any information the bank sends to you. Later, that information could be delivered to the perpetrators in Russia. The man-in-the-middle exploit is accomplished with a module called SSLer. It strips the secure sockets layer from websites and injects JavaScript into pages. SSL is the security technology that's used to establish an encrypted link between a web server and a browser. The encryption ensures the security of data passed between the web server and the browser. So I had to make a decision. Update the firmware and stop using the network-attached storage. Update the firmware and buy a dedicated network-attached storage device. Or buy a new router. Well, I chose the third option and purchased a Netgear AD7200 router. One thing that is very clear, at least for Netgear and probably for other router manufacturers, is that the installation process has improved substantially over the last three years. My previous router had been in service for three years. And it's really not a bad idea to replace a router every now and then. So three years is probably a pretty good lifespan for a router. The basic setup is all but automated, and it includes a step that requires the user to change the password. That is something that should have been added to the setup process many years ago. But at least it's present now. You can no longer set up a router with the user admin and the password password. Also, the router's primary Wi-Fi network was set up with an acceptable SSID, it was called Netgear 13, and an acceptably complex authorization key, KindOnion885. Well, I changed both the SSID and the password. The guest network was disabled by default, so I set that up. The default settings for the guest network create a totally open hotspot. Bad idea. So I set the security to Wi-Fi Protected Access version 2 and created a strong password. The security setting specifies WPA2, Wi-Fi Protected Access version 2. That is the latest Wi-Fi encryption standard and also includes the latest AES encryption protocol. That is also the default protocol on the primary network. Netgear provides an app that's supposed to allow router setup via an iOS or Android device. I downloaded the iOS version and installed it on an iPad Pro, but I wasn't able to log on. Perhaps the app is intended only for use during the initial setup. If that's the case, I was trying to use it too late in the process. Netgear also provides Genie, that's an app that's supposed to allow ongoing management, but logins fail from that app too. It might be that these applications depend on having remote management enabled in the router, but the instructions didn't explicitly say that's the case. Remote management can be dangerous. I avoid using it. So I'll be managing the router only from a computer, not from an iOS or Android device. And that really doesn't bother me, because, as I said, I question the security of management via a portable device. And then I was struck with a major case of irony. Remember, I replaced the router because it didn't work with my existing hard drive, thinking that the problem was with the router itself? Well, surprise. The new router didn't work with my 2-terabyte disk drive, the one that I've been using for network-attached storage, a Seagate SRD00F2. 
The primary deficiency I found was Seagate's from the beginning, not Netgear's. Fortunately, four terabyte external hard drives are available for less than $100 these days. I purchased a Western Digital 4 terabyte drive, about $85. The network attached storage device serves two primary purposes. It is a hot backup device for working files, and it's a transfer device that I use to move files from one computer to another. The hot backup keeps near current versions of files from applications that I use most of the time. Even though these files are also backed up continuously to crash plan and weekly to external drives, having a hot backup allows the fastest possible recovery of files, should I ever need to. My router is now up to date, and I recommend that you check soon to see if your router has a firmware update. If it does, install it. The VPN filter exploit has three components. Rebooting the router eliminates components 2 and 3, but leaves component 1. And component 1 can then reinstall components 2 and 3. So the firmware update is essential. Also, it's critical to change the router's default login credentials. The username is almost always admin. The password is invariably password. Those must be changed. Also, if you've ever enabled remote management on your router, unless you absolutely need it, that feature should also be disabled. In short circuits, we are bidding a fond farewell to net neutrality. But is this the end? Despite the fact that a strong majority of U.S. citizens believe that net neutrality is in their best interests, and the fact that the U.S. Senate, in a bipartisan vote, voted to overrule the FCC's plan that cripples net neutrality, the U.S. House has not acted on the proposal. So this week, net neutrality ceased to exist. There weren't any immediate changes, of course, but changes are coming. Several years ago, Comcast and some of the other large ISPs forced Netflix to pay for better service. That practice was outlawed in 2015, but it could now return. Look at it this way. You are already paying your ISP to deliver the content you want. And you're already paying Netflix or the New York Times or some other content provider for the content you want. If the providers have to pay more, those costs are going to be passed on. And who will get those extra costs? That's right, you. As of this week, the ISPs are free to do whatever they want. Comcast, for example, once prominently displayed a promise on its website not to charge providers for paid prioritization. In fact, with net neutrality, they were prohibited from doing that. But on the very day that the FCC announced the destruction of net neutrality, that promise disappeared from the Comcast website. Coincidence? Sure. It's possible, perhaps even likely, that Internet service providers will begin charging the way cable companies do. You might get basic service for one fee, but have to pay extra if you want access to Amazon or Facebook, Netflix, Hulu, newspapers, magazines, Skype, and other things. 
And certainly we all love the way cable companies price their products. Consumer Reports writes about this topic in a June 11th article. There is still some hope because 29 states have bills in their legislatures that partially restore net neutrality. Laws are already in effect in Washington and Oregon, and governors of several states have signed executive orders that ban state agencies from doing business with ISPs that fail to honor net neutrality. Additionally, at least 20 states and the District of Columbia have filed suit to overturn the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. So it's not quite dead yet. And Consumer Reports offers a web page where you can contact your congressional representative. There are links to both the Consumer Reports article and the Consumer Reports webpage where you can fill out a form to contact your congressional representative. By the end of 2020, Adobe will stop supporting Flash. The technology has been around for two decades and has long been the target of malware. It continues to be a target for malware, and Adobe responds quickly by patching threats. It's up to users, though, to install those updates. Google plans to remove Flash from its Chrome browser in 2020. Firefox already requires users give Flash permission to run and plans to remove support for most users in 2019 and for all users in 2020. By the end of this year, Microsoft's Edge browser will require the user to give Flash permission to run every time a website uses it, and support for Flash will be eliminated in 2019, but users will be permitted to re-enable it until 2020. Apple doesn't support Flash on iOS devices, never has, and it's turned off by default on Mac OS systems. Facebook plans to continue supporting Flash games until 2020, perhaps because that brings in a lot of money to Facebook. So Flash is still a threat, and it will be for the next 18 months or so. If it's installed on your computer, be sure to obtain the latest patch to eliminate a threat from a Flash exploit that uses Microsoft Office files to spread a stack-based buffer overflow attack. The attacker delivers an Office document with a link to a Flash file that's hosted on the attacker's command and control server. Next, the Flash file downloads encrypted data that includes the payload. The download also contains the key needed to decrypt the file. When that operation is complete, the malware downloads and runs a shell file that downloads more malware. The fun never ends. Microsoft has issued a security bulletin addressing the issue and recommends that users turn off ActiveX in Office 2007 and Office 2010. For the attack to work, the victim must download the Office file and open it. But even if you think you'll never be fooled by a phishing attack, it's still a good idea to update Flash immediately. Although this attack exploited Office documents, the link to a malicious file could be delivered in many other ways. The next update to the Mac OS will be out by the end of this year. 
current version, 10.13, also called High Sierra, will be replaced by version 10.14, Mojave. At Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, CEO Tim Cook said that Mojave will have many new features for average users and professionals. Security will play a big role in Mojave, and Apple's Senior Vice President of Software Engineering, Craig Federini, says the new version will add protections that will affect how apps can access the information. Protected devices will include the computer's camera and microphone, along with the email database, message history, and backups. Mojave will explicitly notify users when the computer's microphone or camera is being accessed. Safari will be updated to assist with password creation, and it's supposed to eliminate the reuse of weak passwords. Safari will continue to store passwords. That's a practice that many security experts consider to be unsafe. Safari's default operation will also block tracking scripts and tools like those commonly attached to social media buttons or off-site embedded comment systems. After Microsoft merged its mobile and desktop versions of Windows, users of Apple products have been wondering if that might also be the future for Apple. For now, the answer continues to be no. At least for now, a merge is not planned. However, iOS apps will eventually be available on macOS desktops. No timeline was offered, and Federighi says that there's a lot of internal testing that needs to be done first. Mojave is now available in beta, but only for developers. Batteries play an increasingly important role in our daily lives. They're essential for handheld computing and communications devices, and their role in transportation is growing fast. In some ways, this is a lot like Back to the Future. Batteries were actually invented in the mid-1800s. They were the primary source of electricity until electric generators were invented and electrical grids were built out. That happened in the first half of the 1900s. As AC current became available, the battery was less important and little research was done. Batteries were either lead-acid wet cells or carbon-zinc dry cells until mid-century. Then, as more portable devices came to market, battery technology research picked up. And battery technology is attracting a lot of attention from the largest companies. General Motors and Honda will be working together to develop advanced chemistry battery components and to accelerate work both companies are doing on all-electric vehicles. Toyota and Tesla have the perceived lead in electric cars right now. Although GM's Chevy Bolt is considered to be a good contender, Honda has so far failed to create a viable candidate. The companies will work to improve GM's battery system, so Honda will be able to use GM batteries in its electric cars. The companies say the agreement's combined scale and global manufacturing efficiencies will ultimately provide greater value to customers. GM and Honda previously established a joint venture to produce a hydrogen fuel cell system by 2020, and integrated development teams are working to deliver more affordable commercial solutions for fuel cell and hydrogen storage systems. You will find no hydrogen in spare parts, only on the website. This week, this month's patches for Microsoft correct 11 critical flaws 
and another 49 that are rated as important. Acronis plans to establish a technology park, and starting this week, you'll see some changes if you use Office.com or Office 365. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.